Thank you, Danny, and good morning again, Trinity. Pleasure to see all of you. I'll ask you once again to turn your attention to the Gospel of Mark. And as we just heard, we're in chapter 6. So last week, we saw unbelief so impressive that Jesus actually marveled at it. It was in his hometown where he taught wondrous things, did miraculous works, and was rejected by all the people who knew him, saw him grow up, his family nearby. And if we're honest, we would assume after such a difficult time, Jesus would slow down. Maybe head back to more favorable places, go back to Bethesda, go back to Capernaum, find comfort in prayer, maybe head to the crowds that actually appreciate him, you know, really recuperate after really being pushed to such a limit after a difficult time. Maybe even rethink his vision for ministry, plan for a change. We assume that because that's how we think, that's how we do things, that's how the modern church thinks. Someone has a great idea for a ministry, there's planning and details hammered out, then the ministry starts, and no one shows up. And it fails. Falls flat. No one's interested. You think, well, something went wrong there. Bad execution, bad planning, bad leadership, whatever the reason is, the next step is to circle the wagons, bring everyone in, talk about everything that went wrong, and say, let's never do that again. It's a problem for us as people, for the church. When we fail, we get the wind knocked out of our sails, we lose all confidence, we become afraid, crawl back into comfortable spaces. It's really how we walk around life. But for Christ, it's not what he does. He doesn't crawl away, he doesn't shrink back, doesn't rethink his ministry and his vision as though he could do any better by being funnier, Wearing hipper clothes, maybe by adding some more miracles, some showy things that'll really rev up the people in that town. No. The next step he takes after marveling at a people not believing in him is the second half of verse 6. He went about among the villages teaching. He redoubled his effort. The city denied him. Great. He goes out among the villages. He doesn't leave. The gospel message is going to be preached. In Jesus' action. No matter where or when or what circumstances, the gospel will be proclaimed. That's what Christ tells us in the first half. Or the second half, I guess, of verse 6. It really shows an amazing grit. It shows an amazing great, uh, bravery. How much the gospel is important to the message. doesn't matter who pushes against it. Nothing will get in the way of the gospel. The gospel goes out undeterred because Jesus Christ is undeterred. Actually, I actually had a sermon earlier in Mark that was called the undeterred Christ. We see it time and time again. Christ continues to push forward, continues to not stop in his desires to preach the gospel. And that's a fitting message for a church in their first year. The gospel goes out undeterred because Jesus Christ is undeterred. It's a fitting message, especially after a very tough first year. Just heard this past week, a fellow church planter gave up. 
Three years in, he was done. Tired. He planted just before the pandemic hit, and then he got through 18 months and gave up. Resigned. Moved on. We've gone through something very difficult. Pandemics, shutdowns, anger, depression, exhaustion. That's a tough 18 months. But the gospel goes out undeterred because Jesus Christ is undeterred. And you know what? He goes even beyond just his own teaching. Because the most of our passage isn't about how he's teaching. It's about how he's sending someone out. It says in verse 7, He called the twelve and began to send them out. While he was teaching among the villages, he says, Hey, this is not enough. We need to do more. I can't do it enough. I'm just one man standing here. I am bringing everyone else. Let's go, twelve. Come to me. The Greek word there for send them out is apostoline. Root is apostolos. For those who aren't following him, slowly getting closer and closer to the word. What we know it as apostle. Messenger. The one who is sent out, usually with a specific message from a higher authority. You can really think of this as apostle as a herald or ambassador that speaks on behalf of a ruler. So what we see in verse 7, a group of people have been called, given a charge, and sent out with a message. What we could rightly call it an apostolic church. A gathering of people being sent out. And that's what we see this morning. The very first apostolic church. Christ commissions the disciples. He charges them, sends them out to proclaim the gospel. And we get to see what it actually looks like. What are the characteristics of the very first apostolic church? Three descriptions stand out from our passage. An apostolic church is founded on Christ. We've seen that already a little bit, so we'll see it more. Second, the apostolic church, or an apostolic church, relies upon God. And third, an apostolic church achieves the mission. Those are our three descriptions we'll take up this morning. So first, let's get into it. Founded on Christ. An apostolic church is founded on Christ, and we've got to address the elephant in the room. There are churches around the world that use the title apostolic. They take it to mean slightly different from what I have already listed as a definition of just someone sent out. They take the word a little bit farther. They believe an apostolic church is one that is led by an apostle. The office of an apostle, to be precise. And so to save myself the questioning stares and the emails that I may get tomorrow saying, what are you talking about in the apostolic church? What's going on here? Allow me. Here. The New Testament is clear. There is indeed an office of apostle. There really is. They hold special authority. They've been given spiritual gifts that we don't often see, but they're seen here in our passage. But that office isn't established yet. Just using a word. Sent out. These modern apostolic churches claim they're led by an actual apostle. A person who is an apostle. A man or a woman. As pastor of the church, they are also an apostle. Who have been given the gifts seen in this passage and others throughout the New Testament. So, you can get an apostolic church of Cedar Rapids led by Apostle John. 
or the Apostolic Church of Marion, led by Apostle Mary. One of them casts out the demon, the other one heals you with oil. These kind of churches can be problematic. There are a number of reasons why I have problems with them. But the primary reason I think we need to focus on this and need to bring this up is because they have founded their church upon that one person. Apostle John or Apostle Mary. They've fallen into the error of the Corinthian church that says, I am a follower of Paul. I am a follower of Apollos. Instead of saying, I am under Christ and Christ alone. See, a true apostolic church is founded upon Christ. The apostles listed in our passage only gain their title and their power through Jesus Christ. They were sent out as messengers only because Jesus sent them out. They were able to heal and cast out demons only because Jesus gave them the power to do such things. They knew what to teach because Jesus had taught them all this time. A true apostolic church is founded upon Christ. And we see it right there in our passage. Verses 7, 8, and 10. Just in the language. Jesus called the twelve in verse 7. He was the one who first initiated the real relationship. He called them. He said, hey, come here. Come, all of you, all 12 of you, come. I'm about to tell you something. So he brings the 12 to him. And after calling them, verse 8, he charges them. It says Jesus charges them. That's again, placing it upon Jesus Christ. He gave them a charge. Now, if you don't know what a charge is, when I was first ordained, I was given a charge. The elders and the pastors of the presbytery came together. They laid hands on me and they said, Jesus... Christ charges you to care for your church. Care for this church. Pray, preach, and care. So, think of an ambassador again. I use this example because Paul calls those who are Christians, those who have been sent out by Christ in 2 Corinthians 5 as ambassadors of Christ. When an ambassador gains their office, they are given a charge by the president to pursue the ends of the administration, pursue the ends of the country. And they have great power as an ambassador and a great mission, but they are only as powerful as the country and the person who has given them their charge. So, after charging them, he calls them, then he charges them. The third thing he does, verse 10, he says to them, or he teaches them, again, the idea is we're placing it upon Christ is the one who is the operative action in this whole process. We're going to get to the content of what he does in all of these. But right now we are seeing the power and authority and the action. It's all on Christ. Mark is laying it on thick. He called them, he charged them, he tells them. Finally, back in verse 7, he sends them out. You see, it's all on Jesus Christ. It's all there. This is the type of church we need to be. One that looks to Jesus Christ alone as its leader. One that stands on the authority of Jesus Christ. One that recognizes any of the leaders that are placed up in front are only there because Jesus Christ put them there. I'll continue to say this and I'll probably never stop the entire time you know me. I don't want my name up in lights. I don't. I don't want to expand my brand. I don't want to think of something hip to do for me. No. I want the church to be focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
will do anything in my power to prevent me from being dealt with. Jesus Christ is there. There's a church I know, and it's struggling, as many churches are these days. They're small, they're old. I found them in my search for church websites before I was making the website here at Trinity. The church has a rough website. It looks like it was made either in the late 90s or early 2000s. It doesn't have background music, though it would probably fit. But under their listing of pastor, they say, Jesus Christ alone is our pastor. And when I first saw that, I laughed, actually. I thought, wow. And they have this little picture of Jesus, the, the Western Jesus with the long hair, the blue eyes. Looks very white. I first saw that, I really did, I laughed. I thought, that's an odd thing to say. I wonder who their actual pastor is. I had to look further and further and further, and later I found out they didn't actually have a pastor, which is probably why they're pushing that forward. But, over my years, I have grown to appreciate the idea that they're trying to portray. They're a church in desperate situation. They have no pastor. They're a small group that gathers together. Pastors and leaders will come and go, but Jesus Christ will always be there. He will always be founded there in that church. He will always be the one that they look to. It's codified there in their website. They're not going to say anything else. Jesus Christ alone is the one who leads their church. It's the church we need to be. I'm not saying replace my picture on the website with Jesus. I would avoid that. But I am saying that we should be ones who hold tightly to Jesus Christ. Secondly, we need to avoid chasing after the next big thing as a church. If you want to be a true apostolic church, first it was to not get caught up in needless arguing. The second was to avoid chasing after the next big things. So let's look through it. First and second. First, not get caught up in needless arguing over small matters. A true apostolic church that's founded itself upon Jesus Christ doesn't get caught up in small matters. It's a death knell for a church. It stumbles itself. It binds itself. A contentious church is a dead church or a dying church. I heard that today from an elder. Or not today, this week, from an elder. So I was driving over to Des Moines. A contentious church is a dead or dying church. I've walked through too many doors of churches that tore themselves apart arguing over what the color of the carpeting is. Or what we'll name our youth group. Or what time the service meets. So many deep-seated feelings and argues. Or maybe what the most recent political officials said. And they argue about it. And they tear themselves apart. The church's focus needs to be on Jesus Christ alone. Because it is Jesus Christ who keeps his church strong. It's Jesus Christ who builds up his church. It's what he's founded upon. He is the cornerstone. Secondly... Avoid chasing after the next big thing. And this is a real trouble with small churches. Churches that are just beginning church plants. It's looking through all the different churches and what are they doing to succeed. What's going on? Why is that one holding that many people in it? Why is it doing so many cool things or hip things? This in vogue church. That's what I need to do. That's what we need to chase after. I walked into too many churches like that too. 
arguments over whether or not the pastor should show a tattoo. Arguments about whether or not the pastor's pants were too tight or not tight enough. Pursuit of numbers and being hip. Aiming for a huge church that lacks actual substance, that lacks the view of what is truly at their foundation, Jesus Christ. The church has been around for 2,000 years. It's seen the rise and fall of emperors and philosophies. The one thing that has been constant through it all is the proclamation of the gospel through the power of Jesus Christ. Do we really think about that? Do we think the church should think in centuries? It should think in millennia. It shouldn't think about what happened in the last six months. Because that's how long it's been around. It's always been upon Jesus Christ. I encourage you, let's hold to that. Be a true apostolic church that is founded upon Jesus Christ. Stand strong upon it. We need to move on. Second characteristic, because we haven't even gotten to the contents of what Christ encouraged his disciples to do. Second, relies upon God. After Jesus calls the disciples, he charges them and teaches them before sending them out two by two. The content of that charge and teaching is essential for their success. It's essential. Verses 8 through 11, I'll read it again. It says, Take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And... Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. It's a very specific charge in teaching. A lot of details there. These details can get us bogged down. Churches do. They get bogged down in that kind of idea. They get bogged down in what they can do with those details. They think all those actions are not taken. If they aren't, the ministry and the evangelism it will fail, fall flat. And they've got to rethink things, retry things. Or don't try it again. But Jesus' charge in teaching, he has one overarching theme that he's pushing for. One idea. Rely upon God. Trust in God to get you through this. The charge he gives them is to take almost nothing with them. Remove themselves bread, bag, money, and tunic. Get rid of it. You don't need it. Throw it away. It's unnecessary. Empty your pockets, he says. In war movies, there's always a scene just before the big fight. The general, the commander, whoever it is, the tune leader, looks around at his soldiers and he says, Drop everything except for weapons and ammo. Weapons and ammo is all you need. It's a serious moment because it tells the soldiers there's only one thing that their focus should be on. The fight that's coming up. These disciples aren't necessarily going into a fight. The descriptions of casting out demons sound like a fight. But Jesus tells them, drop all their worldly goods, all their comforts or support. He's telling them, you are now on mission. Head out. Your sole focus in this mission is bringing the gospel. The best way to accomplish this mission is to not be worried about anything that's overburdening your mind. Get rid of it. You can take your bulletins and flip back to the reading of the law. Kyle highlighted it when we were going through it. 
Matthew 6, do not be worried about what your food or your clothes or anything of that sort. Instead, focus on the kingdom of God. That's what the reading of the law was today. The law we read today is the same charge given to the disciples. They're charged to focus on proclaiming the kingdom of God. Not about what they will eat or what they will wear, because God will supply all those things for them. And this charge would probably raise a few eyebrows even here or with the disciples as well. Because losing food and warmth and money is a scary idea. But if they really understood what was being done here, if they really read into what Christ was saying to them, they may realize how important this charge was. See, Jesus was charging them to be prophets of God. If you don't follow me, think of John the Baptist. What did he look like? Jesus Christ called him the last great prophet. John the, Pop, John the Baptist went and lived out in the wilderness. He ate honey and locusts because that was all that was there. It was all that God supplied for him. He wore goat hair clothes because that was all that he could scrounge up. His look, his food, his disheveled nature, they were all markers of the prophet of God. The same is true for these disciples. He says, hey, get rid of your food. Get rid of those tunics. You're going to look disheveled. You're going to look like a mess. You are prophets. Calling out to the people to repent and see the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus, well, Jesus is taking the role of God. He's charging his prophets. He's sending them out. He's commissioning them to go and do this work. The problem is, in our world, both the modern church and the world itself take this passage a little too literally. I think someone sent out on a mission trip or something of that kind should follow right in line with this idea. As though I would come up here and tell you, hey, everyone, we're going to choose one of you and we're going to drop you into the middle of India. No money in your pocket, no clothes on your back. Just trust. You'll be okay. It's all right. You'll be good to go. Some people really think this is how we should do missions. They have a strong faith. I appreciate it. They really do. But the faith falls apart because the mission doesn't work. When it doesn't work, they suddenly find themselves realizing they weren't trusting in God. Rather, they were trusting in the action to trust in God. They were trusting in their faith. They were believing, well, if I have a strong enough faith, this will work. Not realizing that God has done other things. God has planned other ways. They're trusting rather in their abilities. I'll give you the reason why we don't follow this directly. Why we don't do missions this way anymore. The disciples return to Christ in verse 30. It's not there in our, in our bulletin, but you jump down to verse 30 and it suddenly says, And the disciples returned and told Christ all about that they had accomplished. Their commissioning was done. It's a short venture out. It's not prescriptive of all sendings out, because Matthew 28 gives us the Great Commission. The wider idea of how to send out, what to do. And in that Great Commission in Matthew 28, it doesn't say, hey, don't take any of those clothes. Don't bring your food or money. This, this is a mini-commission. Not a Great Commission, a mini-commission. That says, stop relying on your work and your goods. Rely on God. He will provide for you all you need. 
If you're confronted by a ministry or church that tells you give up all your money so that you can go and preach the gospel, you can ask them, why did the disciples have money when they left Christ? Why were they going and fishing and getting money after Christ was resurrected? Why did Paul have a whole house to stay in when he was under house arrest in Rome? Why did Paul receive funds from churches? He was asking for it. He did it because the point wasn't in the goods. It wasn't in all that was happening. The point was relying on God to supply those goods. When your focus is first on God's, the goods will come. You hold on to your money and your tunics and your food with an open hand. Because then they are merely tools to serve God, not to serve your comfort. Now our world, because I've been hitting the church pretty hard, the world itself actually falls into this similar idea. We say that the church can often falter. They can think that they're working so much to trust in God that they're not preparing themselves for it. The world does the opposite. They over-prepare, but in themselves they're still trusting in themselves. They're saying, hey, I'm going to over-prepare. I'm going to always be prepared. Wasn't that the, the Boy Scouts statement? Always be prepared. And they would over-prepare and over-prepare and have every obstacle thought through, an idea gone there, and they're missing the point. Trust in God, because He will get you through it. See, there's a middle line walking there. You don't need to so over-prepare that you're not trusting and praying. But you also don't need to not prepare. You can walk in thinking, okay, this... This could go certain ways. Let's make sure we have some idea of what's going on. But we need to move along. Because we only just got through the charge. The teaching of Christ is there in front of us. Jesus Christ says to them, when they go out, how do you deal with those who you're interacting with? How do you walk into the houses? How do you interact with those who hear this message? And it's right in line with the old prophetical stance. Right? Prophets in the Old Testament would live off the land. They'd travel around the country with a ho- without a home. They'd often find themselves without anywhere to stay. And so people would open up their homes to them. You go to First Kings, you can find like three or four different instances of prophets being invited into homes to be fed and to give a place to sleep. It's often by widows or those with no food or no money. And they share it and they show. Once again, God is supplying the needs Jesus is telling them, once again, your prophets, go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. Rely on God for shelter, and he will give it to you. But when they're rejected, and they will be rejected, that's for sure, they will be rejected. Jesus tells them, shake off the dust of their feet as a judgment upon the people. Now this is, again, once a strange idea. Strange action, but... If you know your Old Testament, it harkens back to this idea. Nehemiah warned the people that if they did not keep their word and follow after God, God would shake out the house just as he shook out the dust from his garment. The shaking out of the dust, it was a declaration of curse upon the people. Dust was death for the people. It was Genesis 3 that says, To dust you came and to dust you shall return. Judgment is on your footstep. You may think this isn't, once again, to the point of relying upon God, but 
it really does further strengthen it. One, God will supply all your needs. And when you're pushed, when you walk up to a door and you find yourself wanting food or shelter and someone says, hey, I'm not interested in helping you. And you say, okay, I will shake the dust off my feet at you. Instead of throttling them and saying, hey, I haven't eaten all day. I need some place to sleep and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. What are you doing? You're relying upon God to take care of the matter. You don't take judgment into your own hands. You let God deal with it. Rely on God to do all his work and all of his judgment. That's a truly apostolic church. You realize it focuses less and less upon the apostles, what they have done, what they will do, what is going on right at that moment. Instead, an apostolic church really focuses upon what God has done, what he is doing right now, and what he will do later. God is at its center. Yeah. It's not against the rules, I would say, in just a practical sense, as we're going out, as we're being sent out. It's not against the rules to go and knock on doors, ask for help, ask for shelter. I've prayed this before. Christians in just about any place around the world can generally find shelter. Other Christians know each other. They're everywhere. You can find a place. You can plant yourself into that place and you will find a home. You will find a church. But we can still do things orderly. We have an orderly form of worship. It's not for so formal that we can't even understand it as though it was in Latin only. But we do have an orderly form of worship just as like we have an orderly form of how we go about doing things. We make things a bit easier. We can plan to bring some water if we're going to go walk around for a while. If we're going to go pray, we bring some food with us. We understand God is still there. He's still helping us. We don't need to go overboard. By overplanning, we don't need to go under either. Brings us to our final point. Need to move along. After all the preparation, after all the charging and the teaching and all these things, Jesus sends out the twelve, the final two verses of our passage. Verses 12 and 13, he says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. An apostolic church achieves the mission. Our third point. The mission of the disciples was to go and proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand and to show through those miracles that the kingdom of God was at hand. It's proclaim and show. Proclaim and show. Those two sides. And they were essentially doing all that Christ was doing, though maybe on a smaller, less impressive scale. Early, early Christ's ministry, first five chapters of Mark, are this. Telling people to repent, check, casting out demons, and healing people. Those are the three things that the disciples were just shown doing. So, what does that mean for us? Practically, what does it mean? If we truly wish to be an apostolic church, a sent-out church with a message of the gospel, a church that reflects the ministry of Christ, should we be healing people? Should we be casting out demons? Should we tell people to repent? Let's give you an unsatisfying answer. Yes and no. Simplest answer first. We should definitely be calling people towards repentance. We should do it. Spend first half of our, we spend the first half of our service looking towards God. A God who welcomes confession and repentance. We should do the same thing within our own lives, within our own 
relationships. We can confess our sins to one another. When we go through our service, not only in that proclamation of the gospel is true to you, it's also a proclamation back for us. Thank you, God, for saving us. And then when we pass the peace, that's a moment where we're proclaiming to each other, the peace of the Lord has been given to you. It's been given to all of us. We can say it to one another. We confess individually and then we confess corporately. That means we're speaking to one another. We're speaking to God as one. So call on one another. Ask how they're doing. If there's an admittance of sin, you can say, we should repent of this. You should repent of this. But always, always bring around forgiveness. Don't just end with, hey, repent. I'll see you later. No, repent and find forgiveness. Proclaim the gospel to one another. It's so important to remind them the fullness of the gospel and how we deal with things. That's what we should be doing. When we call out to non-Christians, when we talk to people on the street, when we talk to friends, we can sit there and say, hey, there's a God who requires repentance, but he will bring great forgiveness. As for healing and casting out demons, the really exciting stuff, it's a bit more tricky. Because like the details of the charge and the teaching, it isn't a one-to-one -one transfer. I would say the result isn't really prescriptive. As the charge isn't really prescriptive. Right in line with that. We don't expect to see this exact form of ministry in every church. If that was the main way to describe a true apostolic church, that it would only have repentance, casting out of demons, and healing, then there would be a lot of non-apostolic churches out there. Most in the city would consider it problematic, as they don't have healing services, they don't have demons cast out. Now, I'm not saying that these things don't occur. I'm not saying that demons aren't around. I'm not saying that there aren't miraculous occurrences. I'm saying that that is not the norm. So what do we do? The obvious answer, I think, is to look at what all of this accomplishes. Like the details of the charge and the teaching, what is all of this pushing the disciples towards? It's to push people towards faith in Christ. That's the one answer for it. That's what we can take away from it. The purpose of sending them out was to proclaim and show the kingdom of God was at hand. That's all it was. We should do the same. Maybe not in the same way. Maybe not with the same version of clothes or all that stuff. We're not speaking Aramaic or Greek. We don't have the same staffs and tunics. But we can tell people about the kingdom of God. And we can call people towards repentance and say, Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Because that is what the kingdom of God is. We can serve people through the city, through hospitality, mercy ministries. There are so many nonprofits in the city that we can help, that we can stand up and volunteer for. We can befriend neighbors and co-workers and old friends. We can tell them about the glorious work of Jesus Christ. We can, all, we can do all that while relying upon God to supply every need, including those new friends and neighbors that got sick of us telling them about Jesus Christ and they moved away. I know, that sounds like a very boring answer. It sounds like Evangelism 101. Right? You want to hear, hey, let's go out and heal. Let's go out and cast some demons. It's flashy. It's exciting. It brought in the crowds for the disciples. It caused a big stir and numbers grew immensely. 
if we really were to do that, maybe we could really become something as a church. Here's the thing. Salvation from sins, the recognition that Jesus Christ is bringing in his kingdom, it's far more impressive than healings and demons cast out. You may think that doesn't look that exciting, but every time someone puts their faith in Christ, the dead are raised. Every time someone says, Lord, I can't, my sins are too great, they're awakened, bones come to life. That's what we're looking towards. Not towards healings or casting out of demons. We want to see sin forgiven. The dead made alive through Jesus Christ. Church, it's been one year since we gathered together for the very first time. It's been a tough year. It's had its ups and downs. I encourage you, the Lord has continued to bless this church. Through numbers, through the joy of the gospel every week. As we step into our second year, stand strong on Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. Let's rely on God for all our needs, and let's achieve his mission. Let's bring the gospel to this wonderful city. Let's be an apostolic church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that is...